The end of history will be a very sad time. The struggle for recognition, the willingness to risk one's life for a purely abstract goal, the worldwide ideological struggle that called forth daring, courage, imagination and idealism will be replaced by economic calculation, the endless solving of technical problems, environmental concerns and the satisfaction of sophisticated consumer demands. In the post-historical period, there will be neither art nor philosophy, just the perpetual caretaking of the Museum of Human History. is 1992. The last few years have seen a wave of revolutions around the world that spelled the end of various Marxist-Leninist regimes. The Soviet Union dissolved into several countries that are now independent nations. Satellite states like Hungary, Poland and East Germany also overthrew their one-party rule. There are similar events in socialist countries like Mongolia or Ethiopia. The only states that managed to survive and remain officially quote-unquote socialist were Cuba, Laos, Vietnam, China, and North Korea. In the midst of all this, a researcher at the RAND Corporation, a one Francis Fukuyama, published a book titled The End of History and the Last Man. It was an extension of the thesis of a similarly titled essay he had written in 1989 in response to the fall of the Berlin Wall, in which he argued against a Marxist conception of a universal history driven by class struggle. Since its publication, the book has been controversial. Jacuzzi Derrida's book, Spectres of Marx, attacked Francis Fukuyama's thesis for being poorly argued. It was also attacked by those who saw ethnic and cultural conflict as the future, and liberalism as merely an expression of the West, such as in works like Samuel Huntington's The Clash of Civilizations. There have also been events since then that people believe supposedly invalidate the thesis, such as September 11th the 2008 financial crisis and the worldwide rise of the reactionary right. After each of these events, we saw people saying that they refuted the notion that liberal democracy was the end of history. While these events do undermine the liberal triumphalism that followed the end of the Soviet Union, they don't actually address the arguments that Fukuyama made of why liberal democracy ended up supposedly winning, nor do they take into account the pessimism that the book ends on. Fukuyama's overall argument and posture is considerably more nuanced than the caricature that leftists have of him as an apologist for neoliberal capitalism. This is unfortunate, because while I believe that Fukuyama is wrong about liberal democracy, I think the points that he raises about why liberalism won out are worth considering. To begin with, let's articulate Fukuyama's basic thesis. He draws upon the model of human social development articulated by the Hegelian philosopher Alexandria Kojev, wherein humanity progresses through different modes of social organization through the overcoming of quote-unquote contradictions. Progress happens both within societies and between societies. Societies interact through war, through trade, through the sharing of ideas, etc. The societies that are less contradictory will have more influence over their neighbors and will thus win out over them. One such contradiction is the inability of states to organize themselves materially. 
Fukuyama offers a militaristic explanation for the drive towards liberalism. States that cannot keep up in terms of military capacity are at risk of being defeated by those superior to them, and therefore have incentives to become stronger both militarily and economically. But the open-ended nature of economic and scientific development means that the rigidity of authoritarian states is a liability. As such, markets are required to handle the economic complexity because bureaucratic structures cannot keep up with the rate of change. Fukuyama gives the example of how Ronald Reagan's Strategic Defense Initiative, which looked to use advanced technology to create mechanisms that could defend the United States against ballistic missiles, encouraged Gorbachev to adopt economic reforms such that the Soviet economy could become flexible enough to keep up with the United States with regards to technology. Increased economic potential has obvious benefits outside of just military capacity, however. A more flexible economy can fulfill an increased range of human desires, which means it'll have a more diverse array of temptations for people in societies that are not as economically developed. However, markets and democracy do not necessarily need to go together. Fukuyama points out that, in fact, many of the fastest growing economies in the 20th century were those under authoritarian states. But what democracy offers is a way for people to check the excesses of the state, to prevent it from usurping the resources that they feel belongs to them. This is why the emergence of a middle class is seen as a prerequisite for democratization, because it's only after a large fraction of the population have something to lose does there become sufficient motivation for a transition to democracy. This is also where the problem of regime legitimacy comes in. A newly formed authoritarian regime may appear legitimate to the people through a combination of fear and protection. But as the threats fade and as people get on with things, social and economic complexity become more pressing matters and regimes have to justify themselves to the people. It's this capacity that liberalism has for handling more complex societies that makes Fukuyama so sure that it's the end of history. Because only liberal societies can handle the fluidity and dynamism of a modern dynamic economy and scientific progress, he assumes that it will be an inevitability that even if we were to suffer some cataclysm that destroyed all of our knowledge, that we would eventually get back on track. But Fukuyama also makes an argument for liberalism's success based on human nature and ethics. If we were truly governed by economic self-interest, we would never see revolutions, for the obvious reason that overcoming the collective action problem of revolution would be impossible, because you couldn't get people to sacrifice themselves for the cause. Economic logic plays a role in the transition, but does not explain it entirely. The other half of Fukuyama's explanation draws on Hegel's ideas about the importance of recognition as a motivating factor for human action. Fukuyama uses the notion of phimos, the Greek word for self-respect, both in terms of confidence in oneself, but also respect as something that is confirmed by being recognised by others. Such a desire for self-respect can go beyond the individual and can become the basis of solidarity between peoples who pursue a common goal. Liberalism, therefore, is a political philosophy that recognises the phimos of all by granting them a set of rights with relation to the government. It also undermines megalophima, the desire to be seen as the superior of others by creating a system of checks and balances on government and by limiting the actions of those who are subject to government. This is a stark difference from more aristocratic orders, which is built explicitly on difference and distance between rulers and ruled. But, importantly, liberalism is not the forced egalitarianism of state socialism. It can therefore safely allow expressions of megalophima, 
by letting individuals participate in various contests that do not threaten the liberal order. It is this taming of megalophima and the satisfying of phimos that leads to liberalism. Fascism, which relies on the megalophima of the dictator and then also the citizens of the fascist state over all others, is clearly unstable. In order to demonstrate its superiority, fascism must actually win wars, and winning wars is difficult. State socialism, which relies on a planned economy to direct people from above, fails to respect their agency and, and does not provide phimos for the average person. As such, in the realm of ideas, liberalism is superior because it does not have these internal contradictions. What's important to note about Fukuyama's thesis is that he's fairly qualified when it comes to pronouncing the long-term success of liberalism. Fukuyama readily admits that, say, anti-modernist Islam or authoritarianism may re-emerge to challenge liberalism, but such political coalitions will challenge liberalism materially, not in the realm of ideas. One such example of this today is China, which moved from a more universalistic Maoism to a more parochial nationalism that simply wants autonomy from the global liberal order. Or the authoritarian states in Eastern Europe, like Hungary and Russia, that appeal to liberal values of self-determination and autonomy to justify their desire for disconnection and simplicity. This is why critics of Fukuyama, who point to the recent failures of liberalism, fail to understand him and thus fail to refute him. Fukuyama's point about the end of history is not that this is a time free of disruption or free of events, but rather it's simply a time in which, when it comes to political ideologies, liberalism remains triumphant. A particular nation or region may adopt a different ideology, but such solutions are incoherent and are doomed to fail. This is where I think that Fukuyama's argument actually holds up. When compared to Marxist-Leninism or fascism, liberalism has certainly succeeded where those failed. The dangers to liberalism, then, are not posed by any ideology, but instead by systemic problems that it cannot solve. Beyond the obvious stuff, like the worldwide lurch towards reaction, the global ecological crisis, and broader political instability, what we have is an inability of government to generally solve problems. Fukuyama's explanation of why this happens can be found in recent work like his 2014 book, Political Order and Political Decay, in which he details how institutions and bureaucracies are either captured by oligarchs or ossified and become rigid. The problems that we face as a species result from an inability to mobilise resources. If we had effective rational coordinating mechanisms at a global scale, problems like climate change would only require a small percentage of the world's budget each year to solve, and would easily pay for themselves in terms of increasing overall economic efficiency, cheaper energy in pits, and reduced stain on the medical system. Likewise, the drift towards reaction worldwide is in part motivated by the economic upheaval brought about by globalization and technological progress. A more competent government could have made the transition much smoother for people. This would not have removed the reactionary backlash, but it would have made it much smaller. But none of this happened, and I think this is because of the nature of the state itself. The very nature of a centralized institution with a monopoly on power creates perverse incentives, to put it lightly. To remain in control, states must not head off just any immediate challenge to their status, but also any potential challenge. This means they must become uncheckable in terms of physical resistance. 
And it's here that I can finally challenge Fukuyama's central claim about the supremacy of liberalism as an idea by claiming that anarchism is a more coherent social formulation than liberalism, and that more importantly, it can address these problems. Also, the notion that fascism and state socialism were the only competitors to liberalism in the 20th century is ahistorical. In the first few decades of the 20th century, anarchism was a motivating ideal for millions around the world. Anarchist theory of change does not seek the conquering and then holding of territory as a primary mechanism of change. For example, had anarchists somehow won the Spanish Civil War, they would have found themselves in a world of hostile countries. The space they opened up would have only survived if revolutions across the world kicked off around the same time. For such a thing to happen, people across the world would have had to have the capacity to resist those who ruled them. Therefore, a major plank of how to bring an anarchist world into existence is to give people the capacity to resist domination. Before we can explore why this can overcome the problems of liberalism, let me first begin by defining just what I mean by anarchism. Anarchism is first and foremost an ethical philosophy that desires to increase freedom by overcoming domination. This means anarchism is not just concerned with formal domination enacted by institutions, but also interpersonal domination. As such, statelessness is a necessary but insufficient condition for an anarchist society. Nevertheless, we can still draw insights from some aspects of stateless social orders, even if they are rife with less formalized regimes of domination. Let's begin by addressing the obvious empirical holes in Fukuyama's thesis about the linear direction of society. His assertion that once you reach a certain level of social complexity, you need states to manage things is close to an axiom among most people nowadays. But this is clearly contradicted by the evidence of complex mass societies that are stateless that can be found in the historical record. One such example is the Indus Valley Civilization, a large-scale, a mass society of agriculturalists and urban artisans that left none of the usual evidence of domination and hierarchy. A recent paper by Adam Green called Killing the Priest King, Addressing Egalitarianism in the Indus Civilization, details the history of scholarship on the Indus Valley Civilization and the overwhelming evidence of it being egalitarian and stateless. Moreover, statelessness is not reliant on isolation from more militaristic states for survival. Peter Gelderloos's book, Worshipping Power, an anarchist view of early state formation, details several large stateless societies that successfully held off much larger and more technologically advanced states for quite some time. There are of course many other examples of stateless societies in the historical record, but these two examples alone falsify the claim that states are required to handle a certain level of social complexity. Of course, an obvious response to such ancient societies is that they have been falsified by history because they were conquered by superior states. I'll address this criticism both empirically and theoretically. Yes, it is unfortunate we have only a few examples of stateless modernity. As previously mentioned, anarchist experiments like revolutionary Catalonia and Ukraine were squashed before we could see how they'd operate under conditions of relative peace. Other experiments, like the Zapatistas in Chiapas, have proven to be resilient but only number in the thousands, and have remained unfortunately technologically backwards. But modern stateless infrastructure is certainly possible. For example, after the government of Somalia collapsed, it saw the construction of a robust telecommunications network, as well as improvements in quality of life. While Somalia is by no means anarchic, a society of decentralized warlords is not a society without domination, it nevertheless shows that cooperation at scale is possible without the mechanisms of a state. 
But speaking more abstractly, the notion that anarchism was falsified as an idea because prior anarchic societies were overpowered by their status neighbours is wrong. Anarchism is an ethical framework that is turned into practical action. While it may turn out to be true that anarchism was impossible beyond a particular scale, back when we were limited to costly writing as an information technology, we've increased our capacity by magnitudes on that front. Given the tiny amount of social experimentation we've seen since the Industrial Revolution, it would be premature to rule out anarchism as a coherent philosophy just because it failed to take hold in the wake of a war that was fought in the most un-anarchistic way possible. Such an argument is actually similar to the one that Fukuyama makes about the superiority of liberalism. Liberalism, like anarchism, is similar in that it is an abstract set of values to be enacted as opposed to a particularistic championing of an arbitrary group of people. This abstract quality is arguably what has made liberalism the most successful ideology at scale in modernity. That it exists primarily as principles means it can better adapt to technological or social upheavals that draw into questions the sort of collective identities used to justify prior forms of social organisation. But such adaptability has its limits, and it's here that I believe anarchism to have a significant edge over liberalism when it comes to the future. The most obvious place to start when we explore why this might be the case is when we consider the question of technological self-modification, i.e. transhumanism. Fukuyama is directly aware of this. In 2002, he wrote a book called Our Post-Human Future, Consequences of the Biotechnological Revolution. And in 2004, he wrote an article titled Transhumanism, the World's Most Dangerous Idea. In both works, Fukuyama attacks transhumanism because he believes that it risks undermining some human essence that liberalism is built on. This essence is rather vague, so Fukuyama appeals to the irreducible complexity of humans, arguing that if we modify ourselves in any way, we will lose essential traits, and thus, liberal human rights will no longer be justified. Some of this is no doubt reflexive social conservatism. Fukuyama, after all, was a neoconservative until 2004, but liberal rights don't have to be justified upon some essential human essence. A good counter-argument can be found in the writings of the transhumanist Nick Bostrom, who, in his response to Fukuyama's 2004 article, points out the flaws of relying on human nature to ground liberalism. He concludes that the only defensible way of basing moral status on human essence is by giving essence a very broad definition say is possessing the capacity for moral agency. With such a definition of what deserves moral consideration, one would think that a transhumanist liberalism is possible. But expanded capacity brought about by scientific and technological progress doesn't just bring to question what we should consider moral agents, it calls into question the very notion of discrete agents. It appears that consciousness is an emergent property of biology and is not the result of any discrete individual self that exists as an ontological fact. At some level of technological capacity, we should be able to interface our brains in a high bandwidth fashion that will erode, if not outright abolish, the boundary between self and world. Such progress would make the notion of a liberal subject utterly unsustainable. If our individuality is technologically contingent, and it is not an ontological fact, then any ethical philosophy based on discrete individuals is impossible to justify. This does not invalidate things like individual rights or property claims, but it reframes them as social coordinating technologies that work arounds for our current technological context, not universal truths. But since anarchism is concerned primarily freedom, it can give us a direction of how to move even when the notion of discrete individuals is called into question. 
If you define freedom as simply the number of states the system can reach into the future, then you have a notion of freedom without discrete agents. If you assume that human consciousness is merely the result of sufficiently interlinked and complex feedback loops, then it makes sense that consciousness can arrive out of any patch of the universe that is sufficiently interlinked and complex. What's useful about this definition of freedom is that while it lets us assess the state of a hypothetical trans-slash-post-humanist future, it also has relevance to the here and now. The freedom of an individual corresponds with the breadth and depth of choices they have into the future. This freedom also makes them difficult to control. As I mentioned in my episode on Yanir Bayam's paper, hierarchies can only function when the agents they rule over are simple enough to be directed effectively. As such, individuals who have more options are harder to control, as those looking to control them need to cut off more directions that they could move to escape them. In practice, what this means is as technological capacity increases, the practical necessity of a state is drawn into question. For example, imagine the ideal productive technology, like programmable nanotech assemblers slash disassemblers that would give an individual the ability to assemble slash disassemble anything. If distributed to every person, it would give everyone the entire means of production, and they would be capable of producing anything for themselves. Such capacities would not only undermine the obvious distributive functions of the state, like welfare, but would also probably undermine the protective functions like defense, because now individuals could just build it for themselves. Even hypothetical liberal states, run by capable artificial intelligences, would have basic constraints placed upon them by information theory that would limit their capacity to respond to phenomena. Such limitations can be overcome if the populations they govern and the environment outside of them are both sufficiently simple, but such simplicity is clearly at odds with the ideals of transhumanism. We don't need to reach such science fiction heights to transcend the state. We're already down this road to some degree. Progress in technologies like solar energy and 3D printing are clearly steps down this path. The last few decades have seen immense disruption brought about by information technology undermining the information monopolies that were previously the privilege of the state and its approved institutions. This has resulted in a significant increase in overall social complexity. As other technologies become democratized and accessible to the masses, we should expect to see similar upheavals. Finally, transhumanist anarchism gets around the lack of existential meaning in liberal democracy, while also avoiding the rigid duties that come with reactionary alternatives. Ideally, we gain the best of both worlds, a meaningful mission that we can orient ourselves around, while also retaining the freedom to pursue it however we wish. A far more interesting direction for the future than working for capitalists and pursuing hobbies on the side in an endless repeat of the 90s. I know you're out there. I can feel you now. I know that you're afraid. You're afraid of us. You're afraid of change. I don't know the future. I didn't come here to tell you how this is going to end. I came here to tell you how it's going to begin. I'm going to hang up this phone, and then I'm going to show these people what you don't want them to see. I'm going to show them a world without you. A world without rules and controls, without borders or boundaries. A world where anything is possible. Where we go from there is a choice I leave to you.